Oh my good Lord, why are you thus alone? For what offense have I this fortnight been a banished woman from my Harry's bed? Tell me, sweet Lord, what is that takes from thee thy stomach pleasure and thy golden sleep? Why dost thou bend thine eye upon the earth and start so often when thou sitst alone? Why hast thou lost the fresh blood in thy cheeks and given my treasures and my rights of thee to thick-eyed musings and cursed melancholy? In thy faint slumbers I by thee have watched and heard thee murmur tales of iron wars, speak terms of manage to thy bounding steed, cry courage to the field, and thou hast talked of sallies and retires, of trenches, tents, of palisados, frontiers, parapets, of basilisks, of cannon, culverin, of prisoners' ransom, and of soldiers slain, and all the currents of a heady fight. Thy spirit within thee hath been so at war, and thus hath so bestirred thee in thy sleep that beads of sweat have stood upon thy brow like bubbles in a late disturbed stream. And in thy face strange motions have appeared, such as we see when men restrain their breath on some great sudden hest. Oh, what portents are these? Welcome to Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Martin. to fight. It is perhaps even human nature to intentionally cause harm to others for sport. The very survival of our species has depended on an ability to go into the fray and come home victorious, whether the opponent be a woolly mammoth or a marauding enemy horde. And yet, somehow, we do not seem to be fully equipped to deal with the aftermath the emotional response that our bodies and minds have to this type of stress and trauma. From the earliest documented times, the effects of war have been written about, and they have always painted the same picture, one of unrest, distress, lack of sleep, and the appearance of intrusive thoughts. Lady Percy's description of her husband in Shakespeare's Henry V, quoted at the top of this podcast, matches that of the symptoms listed in psychiatric manuals today. Lack of appetite, nightmares, flashbacks, night sweats, and rumination. In thy faint slumbers, she says, I by thee have watched and heard thee murmur tales of iron wars. Throughout history, this cluster of symptoms has been seen over and over after people have experienced trauma, particularly war trauma, and it has been called dozens of names. It has been described again and again by scientists, writers, and doctors. In 1678, for example, there is an account of a Swiss doctor, Johannes Hoffer, calling the post-war change in soldiers, quote, nostalgia. 
1761, almost 100 years later, an Austrian physician named Josef Leopold Auenberger mentioned this condition in his fantastically titled book, Inventum Novum Ex Percussiona Thoracis Humani Interni Pectoris Morbus Detegendi, or A New Discovery That Enables the Physician from the Percussion of the Human Thorax to Detect the Diseases Hidden Within the Chest. He wrote that soldiers return home sad, taciturn, listless, solitary, musing, full of sighs and moans, and become indifferent to everything which the maintenance of life requires of them. He could well have been paraphrasing Lady Percy. The following century witnessed the American Civil War, a brutal and lengthy war in which a quarter of a million men and some women died in battlefields up and down the country. Dr. Jacob Mendez da Costa, a physician working at Satterley Hospital in Philadelphia, noticed a pattern in the 400 soldiers he treated. Many, he reported, experienced tachycardia, a pounding heart, shortness of breath, and high levels of anxiety. He called the cluster of symptoms irritable heart, or the more prosaic soldier's heart, and after his 1871 study was published in the American Journal of Medical Sciences, it became known as DaCosta syndrome. Six months into World War I, one of the most famous names for this condition made its first appearance on February 13, 1915, when The Lancet published an article by Charles Myers, a doctor and captain in the British Royal Army, titled, A Contribution to the Study of shell shock. In the piece, Myers presents three specific cases and enumerates the way in which each soldier has experienced changes in vision, smell, taste, and memory. He attributed the symptoms to explosions that the men had lived through during the war, as though the cause were physical rather than psychological. For the next several years, many doctors believed that shell shock was the result of brain damage that happened when shockwaves hit the head after a shell exploded nearby. One of these doctors was Frederick Walker Mott, who was considered an expert in shell shock. His 1919 case study, however, also acknowledges the psychological dimension of the disorder. He described it like this. Physical shock, accompanied by horrifying circumstances, causing profound emotional shock and terror, which is contemplative fear, or fear continually revived by the imagination, has a much more intense and lasting effect on the mind than simple shock has. Thus, a man under my care, who was naturally of a timorous disposition, and always felt faint at the sight of blood, gave the following history. He belonged to a Highland regiment, He had only been in France a short time and was one of a company who was sent to repair the barbed wire entanglements in front of the trench. When a great shell burst amidst them, he was hurled into the air and fell into a hole out of which he scrambled to find his comrades lying dead and wounded around. He knew no more and for a fortnight lay in a hospital bed in Boulogne. When admitted under my care, he displayed a picture of abject terror muttering continually, no send back, dead all around, moving his arms as if pointing to the terrible scene he had witnessed. A 
Shell shock was followed by combat fatigue during World War II and the Korean War, and then, in 1952, the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-1, was published. In it was a disorder called Stress Response Syndrome, which became the latest name for the after-effects of trauma. When the Vietnam War began in 1955 and regular combat troops were deployed in 1965, this diagnosis began to spike and people began to casually call it post-Vietnam syndrome. When the DSM was released in 1968, it lumped the illness into a new category called situational disorders, the argument being that it was merely a normal response to an abnormal stressor. If this was the case, however, then why didn't every soldier return with shakes, sweats, and nightmares? Why didn't all veterans jump at loud sounds and have changes in their appetite? And, seeing as they didn't, could it really be true that the so-called stress response syndrome was a normal response? Let's go back to the beginning. What is trauma, anyway? According to the American Psychological Association, Trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event, like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. And the newest iteration of the DSM, the DSM-5, has broadened the definition to include not only those who experience an event like this, but also those who witness something like that. An event like this creates a pathological memory of sorts, and the fear response, which was normal and appropriate while the threat was ongoing, remains long after the danger is gone. We now call the disorder caused by these echoes of trauma post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. PTSD was first admitted into the DSM in 1980 in the DSM-3. Following the Vietnam War, the surge in symptomology observed in veterans created a need for a clear pathology and diagnostic framework. In fact, the Department of Veterans Affairs was instrumental in petitioning for the definition and inclusion of the disorder to facilitate treatment and access for the many veterans suffering after the war. As it stands today, these are the requirements for a diagnosis of PTSD. Unsurprisingly, criterion A is a stressor. This can be death, a threatened death, real or threatened injury or sexual violence, and, as I said before, these events can be either experienced or witnessed by the person with symptoms. Criterion B is intrusive symptoms, meaning that the event is repeatedly re-experienced through involuntary memories, nightmares, flashbacks, or serious distress after exposure to reminders of the trauma. Criterion C is avoidance, which, as you may guess, is a continued attempt to avoid stimuli that are reminders of the trauma. Criterion D is negative changes in thinking and mood, which may be revealed through an inability to remember important parts of the traumatic event, the appearance of new negative beliefs about the world or oneself, distorted blame of oneself or the world for causing the experience in the first place, or a persistent feeling of alienation and inability to feel positive emotions. The fifth feature, criterion E, is a change in arousal and reactivity, meaning there's a shift towards aggression or irritable behavior, self-destructive actions, hypervigilance, problem sleeping, and a sensitive startle response. Criterion F dictates that criteria B, C, D, and E must continue for more than a month to be considered PTSD. 
This is an important point because many of these symptoms are normal in the early stages of recovery from trauma. Criterion G, functional significance, has a similar importance. If someone experiences these problems, but they do not keep him or her from going about their daily life, then this diagnosis may be too strong for them. They may not have a full-blown disorder. Finally, Criterion H simply says that any clinician preparing to tell someone that they have PTSD must make sure that none of these issues are caused by medication, drug use, or any other illness. So, after a traumatic event, why do some people get PTSD and others are able to go on with their lives with much less disturbance? At this point, there's no conclusive answer to this question. Some studies have linked PTSD to a lower IQ score, although this is poorly understood. Perhaps it is related to an inability to contextualize and process trauma. Many researchers have found that a weak support system is a predictor for PTSD, and other studies have seen a connection between PTSD and a smaller-than-average hippocampus, the part of the brain largely responsible for both storing and recalling memory. This smaller size may lead to dysfunction in memory recollection. In short, they may happen too fast and without specificity, similar to a flashback. For a long time, it was unclear whether this diminished size was caused by trauma or present beforehand as a sort of predisposition to PTSD. But recently, it was discovered that both may be the case. In the realm of psychology, malingering or faking an illness for personal gain is something practitioners are trained to spot. For some diagnoses, however, this can be tricky, and PTSD falls into this category because the symptoms are quite widely known to the public. Interestingly, there is one pretty effective test to identify people struggling with PTSD, although it was not designed to be used in this way at all. It's called the Stroop Test, and it was developed in the 1930s by John Ridley Stroop and demonstrates the effect of interference on reaction time. The basic test is simple enough. The names of colors are presented one at a time, but the color of the text may be different from the color being named. For example, the word blue may be shown written in blue, or it may be shown written in red. In either case, the person being tested is supposed to read the word and say blue. What Stroop found, however, is that it is much harder and takes much longer for the participant to read the word blue correctly if it is written in red or some other color. The test is now used quite often in clinical practice and investigation, and its use in PTSD evaluation is quite interesting. There's a particularly illuminating study published in the Journal of Psychological Medicine in 1999 conducted by Ali Reza Marathi, Mohammed Reza Takavi, and Tim Daglish to examine the usefulness of the Stroop test in identifying patients with PTSD. The researchers put together lists containing neutral words, emotional words, and words that could be triggering for people who had experienced traumatic events like car accidents or personal violence. These words fell into five categories, happy, neutral, depression-related, general threat-related, and trauma-related. The happy words were things like pleased, kindness, and smile. The neutral words were things like sheep, donkey, or gorilla. The depression-related words were words such as helpless, lonely, and crying. 
the threat words were things like terrified, dark, or ghost. And the trauma-related words were things like injured, emergency, hospital, and blood. Just like in the original Stroop test, the words were presented written in different colors. The participants, half of whom had experienced the trauma and had PTSD symptoms, and half of whom had not, were then asked to say the color of the words aloud. What the researchers found was that the color of the trigger words took much longer for the PTSD participants to say when they compared the trauma-related list with the neutral list. And, even more interestingly, in a future study when they specifically asked the control group to try and mimic these results, they found that it was not possible. Even when they were told what kinds of words to look out for, they wound up being slower throughout the entire experiment and could never approximate the effect that the words had on people for whom they were truly triggers. Trauma has a powerful effect on people. As time goes on, our view of what a traumatic situation looks like has shifted, but trauma's shadow and the disruption it can cause continues to appear the same. Tension, irritability, nightmares, and hyperarousal, these symptoms haven't changed in recorded history. Treatment, too, continues to evolve, and cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is now thought to be the gold standard for people with PTSD, though some people benefit more from exposure therapy, stress inoculation training, or virtual reality treatment. In a future episode, we will break down these different types of therapy and explore the reasons why they work and the research supporting them. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with a cameo from Mario Rivera and sound design and music composition by Cambrin Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at PsychologiaCast and visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back next time with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do. When your emotions control your eyes.